Welcome to Season 2 of This Is Me. My name is Siobhan. In Season 1, we met everyday Australians and they shared with us their life-changing moments. In this new season of This Is Me, we not only have a new logo, but we have 10 inspiring stories that will hopefully let you walk a mile in someone else's shoes. If you have a story you would like to share, you can DM us at This Is Me Podcast on Instagram. In this week's episode, we hear Katie's story. Hi, I'm Katie Matten. I'm 37 years old and in 2009 I was diagnosed with MS. There's some stains on your photo. They all cracks on your rusty frame. So Katie, you've got an accent. Where were you born? Yeah, so I was born in England in 1983 and I was actually adopted as a baby. So my mum and dad couldn't have children. I think they tried IVF and all of those sorts of roots and in the end they decided to adopt. And my mum always says that she remembers the day that she got the phone call saying, we've got a baby girl for you and she was at work and she went, I've got a baby girl, I've got a baby girl, she's going to be called Catherine. And she'd already decided. But back then she was a teacher. She didn't get like maternity leave or anything like that and she literally was told she was going to have this baby in like a week's time so she had to go out and she had to buy everything cot car seat pram everything just all of a sudden here you go here's baby did she have any other adopted children as well yeah so two years after I was born they adopted again from a different family Um, they adopted my sister Hannah The situation was very different to mine. My birth mother was very young, I think about 17 years old. From what I can gather, I think she was probably told to give me up for adoption, I imagine, at at that age, being so young. So my mum and dad always told me that I was extra special. You know, they used to say, everyone can have children, but we chose you. Mm. My sister's story was very different because her birth mother was in her 30s and she was married and she had had an affair with another man and my sister was the product of that affair and then she couldn't decide whether to give her up for adoption or not. So sometimes she would give her away and she would go to a foster family and then other times she would be caught visiting and trying to breastfeed my sister. So my sister ended up quite traumatised by that. I think babies maybe pick up on vibes and I don't know she had a very different experience to me and she went on to eventually meet her birth mother which I've never done. Why have you chosen not to meet your birth mother? I felt like it would just be opening a big can of worms that was just going to cause problems. To be honest, I didn't really feel like I'd missed out on anything. Like, I really do feel like my mum was my mum, my dad's my dad, my sister's my sister. I didn't feel like I'd missed out. I look back on my childhood and think I had a really nice childhood and I think my mum and dad made it good. I just feel like I couldn't be bothered to have all that drama. You know, she could have and probably does have more children another husband and new family 
I feel like it would be very disruptive. Although my mum and dad have always been very supportive and said, you know, when you're 18, you can, we'll help you if you want to find your birth parents. I sort of also felt like it would be a bit of a kick to them, like a bit disrespectful in some ways. Like they were the people that took me on, if you like, and brought me up and gave me a good life. I felt like it wouldn't be a nice thing to then go, oh, I want to meet these other people the one thing I was always really interested in and I guess a little bit upset about as a child is that I never looked like anyone you know how people will say oh don't you look like your mom Mm. or you got your dad's eyes and I never had that and I think also because I'm part Indian how do you know you're part Indian they tell you very limited information when you're adopted so I knew that she was 17 when she had me I knew her name was Rona I knew my name was Charlene Kendrick oh. that's what she'd called me you don't look like a Charlene <laughs> oh good <laughs> I knew that my father was half Indian so his father which would have been my grandfather was Indian so I've got darker complexion and dark hair my mum was blonde my sister's blonde and I just always wanted to look like someone and mm. fit in. Mm. And then jump forward to 2008, I have identical twin girls and they look just like me. So that sort of ticked that box really yeah. for me. I have thought about it more recently. I had a look on Facebook one day just to typed in her name and she came up. She was blonde too, so it confused me. But I guess it was the dad that was Indian. I wanted to send a message or get a friend to send a message just saying hey did you have a baby in 1983 I don't know what stopped me I I haven't to this day maybe a fear of rejection I think with an adoptive child there is always a part that's going to feel a little bit rejected because I can't imagine as a mother now being pregnant having a baby and being able to give it away. Maybe that's how she feels now, though. She can't believe she did that and desperately wants to meet her daughter. Maybe. But I think there's always that fear that what if I made contact and then she went, I don't want to have anything to do with you, I've got my life now. Because I'm... I'm okay with it. I don't want to then not be okay with it. I feel very strongly that my mum who brought me up is my mum. Since having children of my own, I think what an amazing thing to do to take on another child that you haven't carried, it's not your child, and love it as your own. How old were you when you were adopted? I think three months. Where were you before then? In a foster home. So you never went home with your mum, your birth mum? Because it's a really lengthy process to adopt a baby. And when my mum and dad were finally allowed to have me, I came home and my mum said that all I did was scream. I just screamed and screamed and screamed and she had to go back to the foster carer's home and get all my blankets because I wanted the smell As far as I'm aware, when you adopt a child, the child can look for the parent, but not the other way around. They're not allowed to contact you. Do you know what's weird? 
about being adopted is that I've always consciously thought that I'm fine with it, but every single year on my birthday, I cry, and I have no idea why. There's no reason for it. I've always had happy birthday and you know presents and been excited, but I always cry, and it wasn't until I was an adult that I was like, why do I always cry on my birthday? Is it a subconscious thing of knowing that my birthday wasn't a happy time? Because they didn't want me. So moving forward, you had a happy childhood. Yeah. You went to university and studied. Yes. And then you were seeking a career in radio. Yeah, so I worked in a bank and hated it and called in sick every single day and went down to my local radio station and hassled the girl on reception and just said, I want to work for a radio station. I will do anything. I'll make tea, coffee, whatever. And by the Friday, the fifth day of me sitting in reception hassling, she said, I'll introduce you to the marketing manager. And then she said, audition for Street Team. And I went from a full-time salary to 17 hours a week on minimum wage and I loved it because then I got in I learned how to use the studio I learned from the other presenters and eventually became a radio announcer myself yeah, how many years have you been doing that for now since I was about 19 or 20 so Katie how did you meet your husband we met in England he was Australian he came over as my new boss because he wanted to have some work experience in the UK. Um, he demoted me. I was doing drive at the time and he put me on afternoons, but I was one of two people that kept their jobs because he did a big shake-up and changed the breakfast show and changed everything around. So, yeah, we were together from 2007, moved in together quite quickly. He had had a vasectomy after having a son with a previous relationship. She got bad postnatal depression, he had a vasectomy and then when we decided we wanted to have children at some point, he had the reversal. We thought it would take a long time to get back to normal, it took about a month and then I was pregnant with twins. So the egg splits for identical twins and that's just a fluke. But depending on which day after conception the egg splits depends on what type of identical twins they are. So my girls were monocryonic, monoamniotic twins, which meant had the egg have split one day later, they would have been conjoined. So they had no dividing membrane between them. So as they moved around, their cords twisted and tangled. And I remember at six weeks pregnant, they couldn't tell, first of all, if they were conjoined or not because they were lying completely next to each other and there was no divide between them. They realised quite quickly that that was the case and they said, we suggest you abort one to give the other one a better chance of survival. And did you discuss what to do? We made a decision straight away and said they're twins. We can't choose to get rid of one. What will be, will be. I had a scan every week from six weeks pregnant up until 32 weeks when they were born. Every week, Jay came 
and every week I'd be in the lift in the hospital holding my breath until the specialist went, okay, there's one heartbeat, there's the other heartbeat, and then I'd relax for a week. (laughs) Every week he would give me drugs which reduced their kidneys working properly, which meant there was less fluid around them, which meant they couldn't go too far apart from each other and tighten the cords, which would have been fatal for both. So he... The specialist said very early on, I'm going to take them out at 32 weeks because I'm happy that if we get to 32 weeks, they should be fine. Is this a common complication with twins? No, it's a 1 in 80,000 chance. Oh my goodness. So everything else went well during your pregnancy? Yeah. When they were born, they were taken straight off to intensive care, which we knew was going to happen. We'd already been prepared and shown the intensive care unit and all these wires and what they were for. It took four weeks in hospital before they were allowed to leave. That was horrible because I had to go home because I was only allowed to stay for a week. So I'd have to go home and leave them there and then have a breast pump and express milk every three hours in the night. So I'd have to set my Mm. alarm for every three hours, but there was no baby there. Mm. I just was like on autopilot. Like I'd wake up in the morning... My friend would pick me up, drop me at the hospital. She'd then pick me up and drop me home on a lunch break. Then Jay would get home from work and we'd go back to the hospital and then on a mission, come on, got to get them home, got to get them home. And it was mostly because they couldn't suck because they were too little, so they couldn't feed. And then all of a sudden one day they started sucking and I was like, oh, my God, and we got to go home. You want your baby to be perfect. You don't want anything wrong. You want to make sure they've got... 10 fingers and 10 toes and I think it's not until later in life when something happens with your health or the health of people around you that then you start thinking actually those little things never mattered would it have mattered if they had eight fingers no does it matter that they're healthy and they're going to have a good life yes I think it does take something like that happening in your life for you to realize that you're not invincible So in 2009, I was diagnosed with MS. When the babies were three or four months old, I remember feeding at night and it was cold because it was winter in England and I remember having a numb toe and I was feeding, it was the middle of the night and I just didn't think anything of it. It's cold, numb toe, it will be warm after I get back into bed woke up in the morning and it was still numb and that confused me because I was like I'm so toasty and warm in bed how is my toe still numb gradually over the course of a week the numbness went up all one side to the point where if you got into a bath you could really notice the difference in sensation on either side even sitting on the toilet I remember one bum cheek was numb and the other one wasn't I'm a bit of a worrier with health and can be a bit of a hypochondriac, so everyone else thought it was nothing. And I thought, oh my God, oh my God, what's happening? I went to the doctor. The doctor then sent me to another doctor. Then he thought it was sciatica, like a trapped nerve in the back. I was happy with that. Okay, I'll have sciatica. That's fine. That put my mind at rest. And then I remember getting out of the car one day to post a letter and I had to cross the road. And I remember just 
running a little bit to just cross the road quickly and I remember thinking oh my god I can't run and if a car came around the corner right now I wouldn't be able to move quickly and I really freaked out and panicked and my husband took me to the hospital because I was convinced there was something really wrong. I went to accident and emergency. They first worried about a possible stroke so they did all the questioning and testing and stuff for that and then they ruled that out and then eventually the doctor said we're going to send you for an MRI just to rule out brain tumour or multiple sclerosis. We don't think it's that but we just want to rule that out because they're the worst case scenarios. I went on with my normal life because I went for the MRI And then I had to wait a couple of weeks for the test results. But by then, everything was back to normal. The feeling had all come back. The weakness had gone away. And I felt normal. And I honestly felt like, okay, it's fine. Like, it's all back to normal now. It's not going to be anything. And then even when I got the letter saying, could you come in for your test results? I wasn't worried. I went in with the babies in the pram. Jay was there. And I'll always remember the guy said, okay, we've got your test results back from your MRI and they're not normal. And I was like, what? Because I really wasn't expecting that. I was like, what are you, they're not normal, not normal, no. And he looked really serious. And the first thing I said was, am I going to die? And he said, no. We've seen evidence of demyelination in your brain. He had a a student nurse in there with him. And he said, I'm pretty sure I know what's going on here. But this nurse doesn't think that I should say it at this time because we haven't done enough testing. And I said, well, what do you think it is? And he said, I think it's most likely multiple sclerosis. I knew nothing about multiple sclerosis. I had no idea. I would hear the word multiple multiple sclerosis and just think wheelchair. I didn't know what it did, what it meant. And he said, the way we can diagnose it is for you to have a lumbar puncture. So I went straight in and and had that done. At that time, straight away? Yeah, which was awful. They have to get into your spine to take fluid out of your spine, so it's really painful. And I just remember crying. I remember crying because of the pain, but also crying because of the reason why. Like, oh my God, I don't want anything like this to happen to me. Because you go through life completely normal you do your day-to-day things you do what you need to do and then all of a sudden someone then tells you something that it's going to potentially change the rest of your life and it's just such a shock and I was crying and crying having this lumbar puncture and then when it was finished I used to wear contact lenses and because of all the crying They'd all blurred over, but I was convinced that I'd started to go blind. So then I was like, oh, my God, I was having a panic attack. Oh, my God, I'm going blind, I'm going blind. And then Jay's like, just rinse out your contact lenses. And then I was like, oh, okay, (laughs) I can still see. Like as if it's going to be that fast and happen at that particular moment. Yeah, the test results came back from the lumbar puncture, 
which showed that there were white blood cells basically attacking your spine because MS attacks your brain and your spine. I saw a neurologist and he said, yep, you've got MS. I do remember crying all the time. I remember saying to Jay, like, it would be the middle of the night and I'd wake up and I'd just, like, cling to him. I remember saying, if things get really bad, could you just take me to a beach so we could just lay on the beach and then it doesn't matter if I can't walk or I can't see, but we'll just lay on the beach and and hopefully there'll still be some sort of life. I just thought that that was it, life was ended. My biggest fear was going blind because I Googled a lot, which you shouldn't do. Dr. Google always comes up with the most negative things, but I um, I read that you can go blind, that you can end up in a wheelchair and... I don't know, just everything that you think you're going to do with your life. And I had two little babies there and I was like, how am I going to bring up my babies if I can't do anything? What is MS exactly? It's a fault in your immune system where your immune system attacks your nervous system. So the easiest way that someone described it to me once, imagine an electric cable... And then imagine if a mouse was to gnaw through part of it and then the light would flicker or the signal wouldn't get through as well. That's what happens. So your immune system attacks the myelin, which is the coating around the nervous system, and then it prevents the signals getting through. So then that can cause weakness, numbness, tingling feelings. It can cause blindness I've got a friend who has MS and she says you know it gives her the sensation of like she's got beer goggles on like Mm -hmm. she's had a few drinks all the time it can cause bladder and bowel problems problems in your brain so confusion memory loss I've heard different things about whether it's hereditary some people say it is hereditary some people say it isn't Some people say that if you grow up in a hot country, you're less likely to have it. Countries nearer the equator have a lot lower cases. It's environmental, they think. So, you know, if you're brought up with more pollution, they don't know. They they don't know. Is it something that you worry about your girls getting as well? I try not to think about that too much because... I'm a worrier anyway, I worry about everything. So one minute I might worry about what's going to happen to them, how I'm going to end up, because MS usually gets worse. You start off with relapse remitting, which is where I'm at, and then it can then go into a progressive stage. I've talked to my neurologist about that and, you know, what's going to happen in the future, and the answer is... No one knows. No one knows what's going to happen in the future. And what I try to think of is when I'm thinking, what if this happens? What if I'm in a wheelchair? What if I can't do this? What if I end up in a home? I then have to go, but 
what if that doesn't happen? Mm. Because a lot of the people that you see with MS who are in the very late stages and are in wheelchairs and are very disabled, a lot of those people didn't have the medication that's available in the early stages like I have now. So I really try and cling on to that and go, okay, I remember my neurologist saying once, you know, that person you see in the wheelchair who can't feed themselves probably didn't have the drugs that you're having now to prevent the damage happening. With MS, there are a lot of medications to prevent the damage happening in the first place, but very few to fix the damage once it's been done. And I just hold on to that hope and the fact that there are new drugs and new trials happening all the time. Who was the first person you told? My mum. My mum had Parkinson's disease, so she was very understanding. My mum was very sick, but she would always have the ability to jump into mum mode whenever I needed her. So she would often need me for things and she'd be quite needy and, you know, she, she went into a home in her 50s. She had early onset dementia, which was Lewy body dementia, which is something that often can happen with Parkinson's patients. You know Robin Williams, the actor who took his life? He had Parkinson's disease and then went on to have Lewy body dementia, which is what my mum had. She unfortunately passed away in 2014. I moved to Australia and left her in England and she was in a nursing home and I always feel a bit like I left her. And had I have stayed in England a little bit longer and not swanned off to Australia is how I feel like what I did. Her last few years might have been a bit better. On my 18th birthday, my mum actually wrote me a poem. She was an English teacher, so she was always writing poems and stuff, but she gave me this beautiful poem. I don't have all of it, but I remember a couple of lines, and it was, Not blood from my blood, not bone from my bone, but still miraculously my own. You didn't grow under my heart, but in it. Yeah, that was just a part of it, but it's my favourite part. (laughs) And when she passed away, how long had you spoken to her until that happened? She passed away before Christmas. I was working on the radio on a Saturday and I remember driving home and I remember hearing Band-Aid, Do They Know It's Christmas, on the radio and I remember this overwhelming sadness I actually had tears in my eyes and I didn't know why and I was thinking about mum and I was thinking about her being on her own at Christmas and I just felt really sad and I also had visions of myself and what I would say at her funeral and I have no idea why I thought like that because I'd never thought like that before and it was just in this particular moment listening to the song and feeling really sad. That night my sister called me and said, Mum's in hospital, she's got a collapsed lung. So she had had a fall and they think that she cracked a rib. 
They think that it was left for a while and that it had caused an infection. She went into hospital and I remember calling the doctor at the hospital and saying, do I need to come over? I live in Australia. Should I come over? And he said, no, 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 not at the moment. You know, this is something that we've got under control. They had antibiotics for her and he seemed to think she would just get better. The next day I called again and they said she's got pneumonia But again, they didn't see a reason for me to fly all the way over from Australia because they give people antibiotics for the pneumonia. The next day, she got a lot worse and she wasn't responding to any of the medication or the antibiotics. And the doctor said, I think you need to come over. I knew then that she wasn't going to live. And I remember being in the studio at work and I called her and... She was really sick and couldn't breathe very well. She was in the hospital. She was delirious. And I spoke to her on the phone. I said, Mum, I'm coming over, I'm coming over. And she sort of was listening to me, but it was hard for her. So she was kind of like, okay, okay. And she was out of breath. And I said, Mum, I love you. I love you so much. And I'm going to come over and I'm going to come over and I'll be with you. And she said, okay. And I got a flight out that night I remember stopping at Singapore and I called my sister and she said, okay, yeah, she's still alive. And I was like, okay, phew. I said, please, please just make her hang on. Just make her hang on till I get there. I just want to give her a hug and tell her I love her. And I remember getting back on the plane thinking she's going to make it and I'm going to get there. And then I remember falling asleep on the plane and I woke up. And it must have just been a reflection from someone's watch. But I remember seeing one of those, you know, the moving lights on the ceiling of the aeroplane. And I just had this feeling that she had gone. And then when I landed, I turned my phone on and I had a text message from my cousin saying, we're here for you feel free to stay with us tonight and I thought okay that's weird and then I also had a message from my dad saying I'm waiting for you in the airport I had thought that he was sending a taxi I didn't think he was actually going to be there and he was there so then I I kind of knew I got off the plane and I walked through the terminal and it was really busy it's Heathrow airport it was packed And I just went off to the side of the corridor and I called Jay. And he said, Hello, my darling. And I just knew by the way he said it. I went, has she gone? And he said, yeah, I'm so sorry. And then I had to walk through get my bags I had to go through um like passport control there was a massive line and I just went up to this guy who worked there and I said I've just found out my mum's died can you please get me through here quickly and he took me straight through and I remember thinking if my bag doesn't come out I'm just gonna leave it it's got like 
one pair of jeans and in it anyway. And then my dad was at the airport and my sister was at the airport. And we had to drive like two hours to get to the hospital and it was the evening and I just walked in and I remember seeing him and just going, Oh mum, I didn't make it in time. <laughs> she got to spend time with her. My sister was the only person that was there when she died. And I think that was for a reason. My sister didn't have a very good relationship with my mum. They weren't very close and my sister was quite difficult and blamed my mum for a lot of things. And I think for both of them, that's what needed to happen. I think my sister needed to be there as the one that was there with her at the end. And I think that my mum needed the same... It's just really weird when people pass away how it happens because it's almost like everything happens for a reason. Like I was in the air, almost there, just like a few hours away. My auntie was in the car on the way to the hospital. My cousin was in the car park having parked at the hospital. None of us made it. So I don't think she wanted us to see her die I cried for a few weeks every night after my mum died and I went to bed one night and I had a dream and in the dream mum was there and I was crying and I said oh mum I miss you so much and she said I know you do darling I see you And that next morning I woke up and I felt so much better and I didn't cry anymore. You have to weigh up the risk with MS medication. You can use a really good medication for the MS, like a really strong one, but it comes with potentially fatal side effects or I'm on a fairly safe one. So it's not the best for the MS, but... The side effects are just things like dry mouth, flushing of the skin. You can feel like your skin's burning, but only for about half an hour. It's nothing that you can't handle. It's just an annoying reminder. With MS, what's your biggest fear? My biggest fear is it becoming progressive and ending up not being able to live a normal life and do things for myself. I don't want to be disabled. wheelchair bound do you see yourself just being healthy and active like you are now like what do you see yeah I see myself being healthy and active I don't want to see myself in a wheelchair I don't want that to happen I just hope that modern medicine will just keep evolving and that that won't happen for me there's some stains on your photo MS Queensland is a registered not-profit organisation that is the first choice for MS information, education, treatment, care and support across Queensland. 
Their vision is a world free from multiple sclerosis and its devastating impact. Contact them at msqld.org.au.